I'm actually going to readjust this as well. <laughs> but I have a question for you, uh, just while I do. Um, talk to the person next to you about what it is about God that makes him... Oh, no, don't. Huey is doing it for me. Thank you so much. Wow. <clears throat> it's a very tall lectern. That's great. Um, what is it about God that makes him so praiseworthy? Joe helped us to think about some of that um, earlier. Thank you, Joe. And we need to be clear on this because there's plenty of important people and loud voices in our world who are telling us that God is not praiseworthy. Uh, Famously, Richard Dawkins, for example, writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, and the list goes on. You see, there are plenty of people who think that God is not praiseworthy. So we've got to be clear on this. The average Australian, though, I don't think they share the vehemence of Richard Dawkins. They just don't really care about God. The thought of praising God doesn't cross their mind. But equally, it's important that they're reminded how wonderful God is, so that they do praise God, because God is praiseworthy and he's just wonderful and they ought to know it. So we need psalms like this, praise psalms. We need psalms like this to remind us how praiseworthy God is. We need this psalm because it's easy for Christians to grow weary at praising God. I think actually before reading this psalm, it was a bit of a challenge for me. I've sort of fallen out of the habit of praising God because we're just, we just never hear it these days. So we need psalms like this. This psalm is like a really enthusiastic friend who's always kind of nudging us and going, isn't God great? I wish there were more friends like that. I wish I was a friend like that. Courtney has a friend called Susanna um, in her old church, and she apparently loves the law. She just loves legislation, everything about it. Um, I don't get that at all, but Courtney says that if ever um, the law is mentioned in conversation or something just vaguely related to the law, Uh, At some point in that conversation, Susanna will say, don't you just love legislation? Don't you just love the law? And we need enthusiastic people like that, and I think God is even more fantastic than the law. So we need this psalm. To begin with, our enthusiastic friend wants to shout for joy to God. Look at verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing before you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to your name. They sing praises to your name. Our friend begins with a universal call to praise. This isn't some local deity or a household god. The God, our God, the God of the Bible, is the true God who holds the nations in his hands. The Lord of heaven and earth, and no part of creation is excused 
from the obligation and the joy of praising his holy name. However, God's work of creation isn't at the heart of what the psalmist wants to praise God for. It's not the content of his praise. The content is there in verse 3, and it's a bit of a surprise. Look at it. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing before you. Your enemies come cringing before you. That's what makes God praiseworthy. And the greatest example of this in the Old Testament is the Exodus. So the psalmist goes on, verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Verse 7 whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. This is what is praiseworthy about God. His power against his enemies. His power that says, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. You see, God is to be praised because of his power. Cast your mind back to the Exodus series that we did and just think about it for a moment. Egypt was the superpower of the day, far more powerful than Israel. But Egypt was no match for the power of God. Verse 6 is a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea. He turned the sea into dry land. Verse 6 is also a reference to the crossing of the Jordan River. They passed through the river on foot. And God demonstrated his power through those events. And throughout the the wilderness experience, God defeated the enemies of God's people. The Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, none of them were a match for God's power. They were about as effective as a duck trying to stop a cruise liner. God is just too powerful, and he's to be praised for it. He continues in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Think back to the Exodus. They were tested. They were tried in the wilderness. They went through fire and water, but verse 12, God always brought them through, and he brought them through to a place of abundance, the promised land. Such is the saving power of God. But what does the history of Israel have to do with us Christians? Well, as Christians, we can look to an even greater example of God's power to save. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? His victory over Satan, sin, and death, a far greater victory than the Exodus. And we look not to the land of Israel, but we look to the new creation, which is going to be far more wonderful than a dusty old land in the, in, well, in the Middle East. You may remember 
in Matthew's Gospel, um, all the way back at the beginning of that series, that Jesus is introduced as the son of David, and in kind of shorthand form, Matthew goes through the whole history of Israel, and it culminates in the coming of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 1. And then he's taken to Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. And Matthew says that this happened to fulfill what was written. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then in the next chapter he passes through the waters of baptism, the baptism of John. And then after that he goes out into the wilderness and is tested in the wilderness and achieves victory over Satan. You see, it's amazing in Matthew, very clever. The life of Israel is happening in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, what's true for Israel here is true for us. You see, the Egyptians were powerful. They enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. But all people everywhere, the Bible teaches us, are enslaved to a greater power. The power of sin, Satan, and death. And all people everywhere can look to the Lord Jesus and say, yes, God is powerful to save. You see, after his earthly ministry, we all know the story, Jesus died, but then he rose again to new life, demonstrating power over death, conquering the power of sin once for all, and securing an eternal salvation for those in the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has come, comes cringing before God because of what Jesus did. Satan has nothing against us because of what Jesus did. God is a God of salvation. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 describes what God has done for those who trust in Jesus. And it says... The record of debt that stood against us has been set aside. He's nailed it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hands, namely his accusations that he could make to God against us for our sins. When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. The penalty was paid. Satan cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ because God is just too powerful for him. The cross was just too powerful for him. Friends, that is a far greater demonstration of God's power to save. And just as the psalmist calls upon everyone in the world to praise God on account of his salvation, so can we. As we announce the gospel, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We praise God, calling upon people everywhere to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And as Christians, as I said, verse 12 stands as a powerful testimony to the hope of heaven. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. 
For the Jewish nation, it was Israel. For us, it's the new creation. So that's the first reason that we have to praise God, his saving power. The second reason is his refining um, fire. And let's have a little, have a closer look at verses 8 to 12 together. Because God could have plucked us out of uh, this world as soon as he saved us, couldn't he? And he could have taken us to heaven. And perhaps you think that would have been better if he did. But he doesn't, and the reason why is because he wants to be praised all the more. Why didn't God just teleport the... Join me in this thought bubble here. Why didn't God just teleport the Israelites out of Egypt and plonk them in the Promised Land? Why did they have to go through all of those trials? Well, it was so that God would be praised all the more. Richard Dawkins points to the suffering of the children of Israel and says, See, God is a monster. He's not worthy of praise. But the psalmist points to the suffering of Israel sent by God, and he says, look at how wonderful God is, how praiseworthy God is. How does he do this? Well, it's all about perspective, isn't it? But before we look at the psalmist's perspective, just look at the the diversity of the suffering described in verse 8 to 12. In verse 9, it's the suffering of almost slipping. The ground giving way. In verse 11, being caught in a net, being forced to carry a crushing burden. Verse 12, being trampled on in battle, having to walk through fire and water. Look at the diversity of suffering there. They are all awful things and they cover a wide range of emotions shock, terror, the weariness of being burdened by a heavy burden desperation, not to mention just the physical pain of it. And I find this actually greatly comforting because the Bible speaks into real, the real world. God understands these things and they're listed here for us. God gets it. And that means that when we cry to God, he actually understands the exact emotion that we're going through. Whether it's terror or desperation, God gets it all. He's not just got a vague sense of, I can pity you because you're feeling sad. No, he understands desperation. He understands terror and weariness and every suffering that we experience. It's much better to pray to a God like that and then to pray to a fat statue or something or um, a a yoga pants spiritualist who kind of says, let's escape to the mountains. No. um, This is a God who understands real life and the plethora of negative emotions that we experience. But more than that, the psalmist knows that God actually sends these sufferings. Did you notice that? He says, verse 10, you tested us. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water and you brought us out to a place of abundance. The psalmist recognizes that these sufferings are actually sent by God. 
It's not that the Israelites were unlucky or that the universe was against them. No, the psalmist understands that these things are sent by God. And he also knows why. And the answer to why is in verse 10. There's nothing random about it. Suffering isn't meaningless. The psalmist says, you have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Now, I wasted time this week looking at how silver is tried. And (laughs) um, I didn't learn very much, actually. But fire is involved. And water is involved. And getting beaten on the head with a hammer is involved. It's not very pleasant um, for the silver. And God is described here as a silversmith who refines us. And he puts us into the furnace and refines us with our sufferings to make us holy, to remove sin and make us pure. Now, I've been reading a book um, to help me enjoy God a little bit more. I recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Tim Chester. It's called Enjoying God. And he has this to say about this very thing. He asks, how was your day today? Think about that for a moment. Think back over your day. He says, everything that has happened was put in place by your heavenly father for your good. To develop your holiness. Think about those things that took you by surprise. Think about what you enjoyed and what went wrong. The piece of toast that landed butter side down. The toothpaste which fell down your clean sweater. The milk that was spilled on the carpet. All were part, all were part of your heavenly father's tailor-made training regime. All of them were sent by God to try us, to refine us as silver is refined. Now that is an amazing thought, isn't it? Just this morning, this isn't in the notes, but just this morning... Sophie, who, is, who serves as Courtney in my alarm <clears throat> every morning, she usually wakes up at um, 6.30 and then kind of grizzles and we wait there until 7 and that's the time that she gets up. But today, for some weird reason, she decided to sleep in until 8.30. And I'm preaching here at 9 and it was very, very stressful this morning. It was really hard getting in. And I said to my wife, after thinking about this and preaching it to her yesterday, sent by God to try us, to test us. <laughs> How are we going to be refined today? How are we going to respond well? It's a really wonderful thought and a really wonderful perspective on life to have. And just think about the difference this would make if, um, to, to everyday life experiences. Going home from work and you're in traffic and you begin to get frustrated because you're looking forward to getting home, but then you realize, hang on, this has been sent by God to refine me. How how could this be used by God to refine me? And you realize, I might have half an hour of quiet just on my own. I could do so much with half an hour of quiet. (laughs) 
no one bothering me. I don't have to worry about the future. I can just stay here, read my Bible. No, don't get your phones out during <laughs> in your car. <laughs> I can pray. I can think through my life and reflect. It would change everything, I think. Because there's plenty of irritating things that God sends our way in life. And if we realize that they were <laughs> sent by God to refine us, what a difference that would make. It would cause you to say, thank you, God. Thank you for this opportunity to be patient. Thank you for this time to sit on my own, to reflect, to realize that the world doesn't fall apart if I'm not doing things. Thank you. The world would be a far less annoying place if we had this um, view of life. I think that's why James says in the beginning of his letter, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, all of those examples were silly examples, and I don't want to minimize the bigger, more severe sufferings that we may face in life. Sometimes we're forced to think through awful things that happen to us. And it's really hard to see what God could possibly be doing in a situation like long-term illness. Like the cancer that my auntie died from after over 10 years of suffering. It's very hard, leaving, dying at 50 and leaving teenaged children behind. It's very difficult to see what God could be doing to bring refining out of that. Or debilitating experiences like extended unemployment or the death of a child or the death of a spouse. These are huge things that I just do not understand at all. But I can tell you that they all However bad they are, especially when they're bad, actually, they're an opportunity to pray, aren't they? And they're an opportunity to fall on your knees before God and cry out to God and cling to God. All of them. And they're an opportunity to make yourself vulnerable before God and to realize that it's foolish to place any hope and any joy in in the things of this world and to place all of your hope and all of your joy in God, aren't they? And I don't know about you, but I know a couple of really wonderful people, like exceptional Christians. And without exception, all of them have suffered in massive ways. And I'm not shocked by that at all. I don't think they would be as wise and as strong and as kind and as patient as they are if they hadn't suffered. They'd just be like me, weak and impatient. And so, <clears throat> it's true, isn't it? That God uses suffering to purify us. Suffering brings a person to their knees 
and purifies them and cleans away the dross and makes them fear God and ask God for mercy. But I want to say that if you're walking through fire and water right now, just take heart because God still loves you and he's sending these things for your good. And verse 12, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. He always brings his people through to a place of abundance. And for me, the words of, um, in Revelation 21 come to mind. That in the new creation, there'll be no mourning and no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the place that God is bringing us to. God's refining us now and preparing us for the new creation. Uh, The third thing that the psalmist wants to praise God for is his attentive lips, his attentive ears, sorry, God's attentive ears. And in the wisdom of God now, the psalm moves from these abstract ideas of God um, looking after God's people to a very concrete individual example. An individual here in verse 13 picks up the solo and says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. This man commits himself in his solo to make costly offerings to God, an offering of fattened animals, rams, bulls, goats. And I like to imagine at this point, he's in the temple making this public offering of thanks to God, and his friends look at him and go, let's call him Joshua. Joshua, why the great expense? Haven't you gone a little bit over the top, Joshua? And Joshua says, not at all, verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. We're not told the particular distress that Joshua went through, but we're told that God listened to him. He did not remove his steadfast love from him. He attended to his prayers. He was there through it all. This man went through some sort of fire with God. He was tested, and in the middle of it, he praised God. He cried out to God. When his sins were exposed, he didn't cherish them in his heart but he got rid of them. And God got him through. God listened to his cry. And this guy just wants the whole world to know. And he wants to say thank you to God and offer loads of bulls to God, which was the way that they did it back then, to say thank you, God. He's going to stand out in public and testify to what God has done to save him. It's not just theoretical for him that God is a God who saves Israel, that God is a saving God, 
This is personal for him. He's experienced it firsthand. And this is what he does. He declares before people and in his actions how wonderful God is. All right, so from start to finish, the psalm has been a call to praise. God is to be praised in public. God is to be praised in private. Why is God to be praised? Well, because he's powerful to defeat his enemies, even sin and death. God is powerful to save. Why is he powerful to save? Because he's a refining fire. He doesn't remove his steadfast love from us. He guards us and purifies us in our suffering and in the end brings us to a place of abundance. That's why God is worthy of our praise and everyone's praise. Peter praises God for these things in his letters, in his letter to uh, the Christian believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 8 our first reading. And I thought I'd just give him the final word here and read what he says there. And I'd encourage you just in the quietness of your own hearts now as we close to cherish these words and to echo these words um, in your heart to God. I'm going to read them slowly so that you can do that. And you can turn there if you want. It's 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 8 is what I'm going to And then we'll pray together. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered Satan and has given us new life into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a refiner's fire. And we ask that you would guard us in your power, shape and fashion us into the likeness of your Son, strengthen our faith, help us to cling to you through the storms of life. We pray these things so that we may share in the heavenly inheritance, praising your name now and praising your name in the new creation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.